Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan Enclave. Uh, Thrilled to be joined today uh, for our first broadcast of the new year by Master of Wine, Carolyn Herman. Carolyn brings a unique perspective to the wine sector as an attorney uh, with a focus on corporate sustainability, environmental law, and international trade. She began her wine journey after obtaining her JD in 2005, working in retail sales while pursuing her studies with the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. She currently works uh, as an attorney dedicated to uh, alcoholic beverages, regulation thereof, uh, particularly pertaining to imports and exports. She became a master of wine, uh, one of uh, 400 plus in the world at this point, um, uh, which is much more than uh, it actually sounds like because you know most of those are in the UK uh, in 2018. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, excellent. Uh, we are trading lesser-known Piedmontese red wines today. So uh, Piedmont, uh, the root there, foot of the Italian Alps and source of Brunello, uh, source of rather uh, Barolo Barbaresco, uh, the king of Italian wines, the wine of kings, uh, Nebbiolo, your show pony there. But we are exploring a couple lesser-known varietals. Carolyn brought along a bottle of Rouquet, uh, and I followed suit with a Grignolino, both from the subregion of Monferrato, which is cartoonishly beautiful, uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site that just happens to make uh, world-class wine. We will trade our thoughts about what's in the glass, and then I'll read a bit of verse in Carolyn's honor to close things out. If you like the sound of what we are drinking, both wines will be available for sale at Revelers Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel studios. Uh, before we launch into the bottoms themselves, Carolyn, a few questions uh, about your life in wine. Um, uh, we kind of covered this before we, we went on air, but uh, to my mind, the most interesting thing about your journey is that um, wine is kind of a second professional life for you. Uh, how did you get into wine in the first place? Yeah, so um, I grew up with parents who love good food and good, good wine. So it was not uncommon to see a bottle of average price Puy Fusé on the table on a Tuesday night. Did they have a sense of what they were drinking for the sake of, you know, this is Chardonnay, this is from the Macon, this is why it tastes the way it does, et cetera? Or was it just kind of prima facie, this is delicious, you know, wine? They actually knew what they were doing. Oh, nice. Yeah. So my dad was in the Army, and he was stationed overseas, and that really... Uh, allowed them to learn a lot, for example, about German wines when they were stationed in Germany. And one of my favorite stories, this happened way before I came along, um, they would uh, take the weekends and drive across the border into France. This was back in the 60s. And, um, it was easier to do that. <laughs> it was much easier to do it then. And um, they, they had no money because the army just did not pay very much. And they would go to a campsite and camp overnight for the weekend. And they would save all their money and go to a Michelin star restaurant. Oh, that's awesome. But my favorite part of it is that once they were in the restaurant, they would see the other campers from the campgrounds in the restaurant. <laughs> Everyone was doing the same thing. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, I, that, always, that always appeals to me because I'm definitely someone when I travel, um, I would rather splurge on meals than accommodations. Very sensible. So at any rate, they came back to the States after their uh, army journey and, um, and really just brought their love of food and wine with them that they had picked up in, in Europe. Um, my dad, one of my dad's last tours, um, next to last tour, was as a defense attache with the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland. So I he, actually, had some, he had some fun postings. He did. He did. He chose well. Um, so I actually grew up in Helsinki. And um, as a result, uh, well, I was too young to enjoy the benefits of the diplomatic life, unfortunately, but my parents' job was diplomatic relations, and that meant throwing great parties. And some of their closest friends were their British and French counterparts. And they weren't drinking aquavit or whatever uh, the Finnish well, drink. Aquavit would, would factor in for yeah. sure, uh, but really good wine would yeah. factor in because the British and the French attaches uh, instructed my parents well. 
Well, and it's funny, in as much as uh, the Brits don't or haven't until, you know, recently for the sake of, uh, you know, sparkling wine trade, made wine, they very much invented, um, you know, wine connoisseurship in a lot of ways as, as we know it. And, you know, the institute that you ultimately got your certification with kind of speaks to that, um, that history. Uh, but uh, you were, they were probably drinking particularly well because they were in a, a pre- Park Rise, you know, could afford first growth Bordeaux and Grand Cru Burgundy kind of universe. Absolutely. My mom still has her menu list and her wine list from those those parties, and they're they're fascinating. Yeah. So at any rate, um, so that was all of my earlier influences. Um, but it wasn't until after I graduated from college, my first job overseas, or after college was overseas, I had a teaching fellowship at Athens College in Greece. Oh, awesome. And I was there for a year, and then after that, I moved up north to Prague, to the Czech Republic, where I oddly became an equity analyst for an old Habsburg bank. Oh, that's uh, amazing. That is now part of Bank Austria. Um, with my degree in philosophy, which everyone told me I couldn't get a job doing anything in that field with. Um, but once I moved overseas, uh, then I started to understand the link between food and wine. And it wasn't just about having a glass of wine at happy hour. It was about how the food and the wine paired with each other. So even though I was in Greece and then in the Czech Republic, not necessarily known back then for fine wines, there was absolutely a history, a culture, a link to the food and the wine, and I started to get it. Yeah, and in terms of the way, you know, you lived your life, you know, understood, um, you know, food and drink, it was baked in. So it was already something that you were plugged into and, you know, inherently valued. Now, uh, you went to law school before you started your... Um, you know, formal wine training. Uh, did you know at that point uh, that you wanted to specialize in alcoholic beverage law? No. In fact, I went to law school specifically for environmental law. And uh, that was my number one focus. I'd had my time as an equity analyst. I toyed with the idea of getting an MBA. I sort of, in retrospect, wish I had gotten an MBA. It would have been more lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Way more than environmental law. But my, my heart was in environmental law. And, and so that's what I went to law school for. And um, I ended up in Washington, D.C., working for the Environmental Protection as, Agency. As many lawyers do. Uh, exactly. Um, and, and that was a very exciting time. Oh, cool. um, being, bringing big cases against polluters. Um, but it was... Um, Correct. When I, when I was in law school, I was not thinking much about wine whatsoever. I was just trying to get through school. Well, like regulating alcohol sales is not the sexiest branch of law. Truly. Um, you know, I, I feel like prosecuting polluters, you know, that feels like very social justice oriented. And, you know, that's a good carrot, you know, for the sake of slogging through, you know, reams and reams of, you know, just code of insert jurisdiction here, um, much more so than, you know, uh, 13%, 15% or whatever else we're regulating for the sake of wine. I'm la you're exactly right. I'm laughing because maybe that is why I got into wine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I needed something to, to get me through those, uh, those long hours of, uh, of um, document review. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I feel like probably as a, as a young attorney, you weren't getting, you know, the glamorous work at the EPA. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and Although I, they do kind of throw you in. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and, and, and I get the sense about, you know, working with the government that, um, you know, you demonstrate proficiency. You know, they'll throw stuff your way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you decide to formally start learning about wine as opposed to just kind of, you know, making it something that you enjoyed um, avocationally? Yeah, so um, by the time I moved to Washington, D.C., around 2005, I had gotten sufficiently frustrated with not knowing what I was drinking. Um, I had been in San Francisco for a number of years, and um, of course, you know, there were so many amazing restaurants, and Napa and Sonoma were right on the doorstep, and so I would go up there with friends and, you know, in, enjoy an afternoon of wine tasting, but I had no idea what I was doing. And so I moved to D.C. and started working at EPA, and, um, and I guess I just 
maybe at that point had a little bit better paycheck um, and could afford to start looking into some wine education. And um, yeah, the time was right. And so I just went for it. And I, I started off with a, uh, a four session course that each, each class would devolve into um, social hour and food and wine pairings, which was lots of fun, but I was getting increasingly frustrated because I was searching for the answers. Yeah. And I didn't want to sit around and chit chat. And so I did some research and found the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, WSET. And um, it's a London-based organization and has a fantastic curriculum. And the only place nearby that was offering those classes was uh, were New York City and Philly. And so I went to New York and did an intensive one week level three class. And I just, I thought, what have I gotten myself into? I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and it was awesome and wonderful, but, um, but it was a little crazy. And I met a, a friend in that class who said, well, you know we're gonna be doing the next level, which is level four, the diploma. And I said, never again, I'm not doing anything like that. So of course she and I both signed up. You're holding down a regular job as an attorney at this point too. Yeah, and a relatively busy job. I yeah. mean, what am I thinking? And um, so of course she and I signed up promptly for the diploma class, which we had to do home study. She was um, out of state, I was out of state, based here in DC, and we didn't have a wine school here. And um, at the same time I was working full-time for the government and studying, I was uh, working at Whole Foods in the wine department. Jesus. And I was uh, shelving wine and sweeping up broken glass. That's so there's uh, this great old In Living Color skit about uh, like new Caribbean immigrants. It's like, you ain't got but three jobs. I feel like uh, that, that's you at that time. I, well, at the time I had two jobs, but wait, I did have three jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I mucked, mucked my way through uh, the WSET diploma levels until I hit unit three, um, which is uh, a, about a six-month course of all the wines of the world, except for fortified wines and sparkling wines, which are covered separately. And I was gutting my way through it and really not knowing what I was doing at all, but spending every single weekend from sunup to sundown studying uh, I didn't have access to a ton of wines that I could actually afford. And, um, and so my theory knowledge was fine. Um, and I could write essays and think critically about these issues. Uh, but my tasting skills were dismal. And I come into Whole Foods one night for the closing shift after working a full day. And one of my colleagues hands me a business card of a master of wine who had been in the store that day. Oh, cool. And uh, who was uh, it? Well, it's Jay Yeomans who owns the Capital Wine oh, School, great. who um, because of because of Jay hearing about this wacko person trying to get through the diploma classes on her own, he graciously left his card there and said, "Have this crazy person call me," which of course I did, terrified. I had no idea what a master of wine was. I had no idea, you know, what I was getting myself into. He couldn't have been more generous and supportive. And he set up blind tastings for me. He got me through my exams. And at that point, I just basically bugged him until he hired me. And I followed him around and poured wines for the wine classes he was teaching. And eventually he opened up a wine school and I started teaching for him at the Capital Wine School. And that we've been doing that for um, quite some time, maybe 10, 15 years now. That's amazing. Um, that's really cool. At what point did you decide to kind of take the full plunge and uh, go for your uh, master's of wine? And, and we, should, we should kind of, we've been dropping all these acronyms. And uh, to the extent that, you know, people are familiar with these certifications, I think the one that um, sucks a lot of the air out of the room for the sake of the wine trade um, is uh, uh, the Master Sommelier uh, designation. So it should be said there are a lot of different certifying bodies um, for the sake of uh, learning about wine. Um, uh, WSET, the Wine Spirits and Education Trust, is based uh, in, in London, and um, it's kind of um, a... Uh, a body for everybody, um, which was kind of cool. It's it's not necessarily trade focused. Um, it's you know a lot of people who ultimately um, study with 
you know, the WSCT um, uh, folks, you know, are in the trade, but you don't have to be. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really cool that way. Uh, the Court of Masters Sommeliers is uh, a different body. Um, was initially launched actually in, 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 in London itself, but um, uh, really came of age and is kind of an American um, organization and is more devoted to um, people in uh, the restaurant trade, uh, particularly people uh, on the service side of things. And uh, service accounts for uh, fully a third um, of, you know, kind of their testing regime. And then uh, we have the, um, ultimately, the... Um, certification which you got, which is through the Institute of Masters of Wine. What is the Institute of Masters of Wine? So the Institute of the Masters of Wine is also based in London, um, and it y you are, uh, to, to be a candidate for the MW program, um, you need to demonstrate five plus years of trade experience uh, of some sort. And so selling wine at retail, teaching wine classes, especially WSET, that was enough to qualify me to enter the yeah, program. Yeah, and the, the trade experience doesn't necessarily have to be restaurant experience, which Correct. is you know a big differentiator for the sake of the Institute of Wine versus the, the court. Yeah, and it really goes to the purpose. Um, master Psalms are in restaurants, curating well, wine I mean, lists, the, selling the, wines. Honestly, the bitch of it is, and this is edit editorializing, is most master psalms, once they get their master psalm certification, leave the restaurant. Uh, but, you know, we'll leave it there for the time being. Right. And so there are, um, there are psalms that enter the MW program. Um, but really, the, the, um, the majority of candidates come from either winemaking backgrounds uh, wine consulting in some capacity, um, wine journalism, which is much bigger over in Europe and the UK than I think it is here, um, although we have fantastic uh, wine magazines and wine journalists here in the States. Um, and then you have kind of the oddballs uh, like me who maybe have something entirely different to bring to the table. And ironically, um, when I first uh, joined the, or was admitted to the MW program as a candidate, uh, I, I got a lot of flack for being an environmental lawyer. And people just said, well, that's, that's not relevant. You're not part of the trade. Are you and serious? I said, I am very serious. And this I said, is well, circa, circa what? I, um, this was in the 2010s. That's terribly sad. I feel like it couldn't be more relevant. Well, of course, now we are all recognizing how important sustainability and resiliency is throughout every single sector and every single product. Um, but back then, there was a real bias about not um, hauling a bag of, of samples around and, and showing no up to And no one cared accounts. what their bottles weighed. <laughs> no one cared what their <laughs> bottles weighed or what was in them exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, truly. So, um, so it, it's very interesting how everything has come full circle and now um, I do a lot of work on the uh, sustainability side as it relates to the wine sector. Yeah, it's really awesome. And, and the thing I love about the Institute of Masters of Wine, um, this is as a totally uncredentialed, um, you know, charlatan of a wine expert myself, uh, is that it does attract people from all these different walks of life. Uh, the certification initially grew out of the kind of London Guild system. So there's long been, um, you know, this pretty much aristocracy. So like if you were you know, a second or third son who went to Oxford or Cambridge and, you know, you didn't get a job in another field, the wine trade was a pretty nice way to go. Um, and so you have all these Hugh Johnsons of the world, um, Hugh being one of the greatest writers about wine um, uh, of any era, but particularly this era, you know, who uh, get into uh, uh, wine. Um, but after World War II, um, you know, these merchants, I think there are 13 of them, uh, 12 or 13 of them in London, they want to establish a more rigorous certification for um, people in the trade. And uh, the first test is uh, in 50, uh, 53, yes, and uh, six out of 21 passed, um, uh, which, is, which is pretty wild. Um, uh, and uh, just uh, so four, 498 have passed since then, uh, circa March 2021, there are just over 400. Um, and you are one of 45. Uh, as I, you know, read um, online uh, in, in the U.S. The, the 18th woman in the U.S. to pass. That's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, now, uh, let's taste the wine, um, uh, and then we can kind of talk about what that process was like, because it is incredibly rigorous, um, and it forces you to, to specialize a bit. So um, you said that 
you know, uh, obviously sustainability was a specialty for you, but um, your specialty evolved a bit. And uh, I became, you know, um, taxation and, and importing. And, and, you know, I think that's a, a really interesting side of the trade that most consumers don't have a fuller sense of. And it's certainly relevant for the sake of two wines from Monferrata. So Yeah, in fact, it's actually what I wrote my Master of Wine dissertation on, which was um, um, importing generally smaller volume wines um, into the U.S. and kind of how to find your target market and make money. And the, the idea behind my paper was that I would go to these trade tastings and always in the back of the room there would be this forlorn little table of um, bottles that would have a white sticker on them that would say for sampling only, not for resale, and no one would be representing them. And, you know, they would, they would be there for the trade to try to see if they could get representation here in the U.S., if they could get a distributor. And I always gravitated towards that table. That, to me, was the most interesting because no one was trying to sell me anything. And I just thought, how do we help those bottles of wine and those producers? Did you feel like you got more interesting wines at that table than you did at other tables? Eh, it was a little hit or miss. It was, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, probably, it was probably more hit or miss. But I feel like it was probably more exhilar exhilarating when you found the home run. It's true. I mean, that yeah. is part of the journey, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first wine uh, we're trying here is uh, Rouquet. Why did you pick Rouquet? I picked Rouquet because I just think it's awesome. So I love the nose on it. It's really aromatic. Um, it's, I don't really know what violet smells like, but it smells like violet. It smells um, like rose petal. So um, uh, my tasting sheet says violet, rose, iris, jasmine. Yeah, uh, so yeah. So that's a lot of flowers. It's uh, a lot of flowers. Yeah. It's got to have some you know, smidgen of muscat in its well, it, DNA. it does, actually. So um, uh, it is one of those red wines that uh, is so perversely aromatic, it almost is, you know, white wine masquerading as red. Uh, so uh, it is a varietal that uh, very recently, um, and, you know, people like Carol Meredith that you see Davis doing this work and um, others uh, on the other side of the pond, but uh, they... Uh, discovered that uh, Rouquet is the crossing of Croatina, um, which is kind of a... Croatina shows up more in the Alto Piemontesi um, as a blending agent for Nebbiola. Um, but it's a sturdier, uh, kind of thicker skin red varietal. And uh, Malvasia aromatica de Parma, which is an extinct form of, uh, you know, essentially Muscat. I mean, there are a lot of un related Malvasias. Malvasia is this kind of like catch-all term for aromatic grapes throughout the Mediterranean region, but um, it's the scion of a, you know, thicker skin red varietal uh, from the northern of Italy, or north of Italy and a more aromatic uh, white varietal, and it tastes that way. It does, it does. So um, I love Ruque, and there's a bunch of other single varietal Italian uh, wines that I am really into these days, but, um, but this was um, available, and and also, I just think it's really delightful. Um, to your point, we think of white wines as being aromatic. We don't really think of red wines as having floral aromas. And I just think it's a big surprise when you get a red wine with that top note. Because the first thing you see is a really pretty um, kind of purple ruby color. It's got quite a bit of color, actually. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is you smell the wine, and you know you get this waft of florality. I will say that um, I've had other vintages that have been even more floral, and this is a 2021, so maybe. Yeah, I was I was actually surprised. Um, so Rouquet can just be perversely aromatic. This is this is kind of tastefully, <laughs> tastefully ar aromatic. Um, still enjoyably so. Still very expressive in the glass, um, but surprisingly structured uh, as well, which it was just kind of um, a fun trick to to manage. That's right, I, and that was going to be my my next point. But just before we move on to structure, um, so I am one of those wine tasters that does not swirl the wine in the glass. So I just think that as we swirl the wine, we're losing all of those volatile aromas that have been created either from fermentation or just oh, are part of So I, I always swirled because I want to release those. Sure. Um, uh, and I, I, you're, you're probably more right than I am. For There's the sake no of, right or wrong, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, 
I always pour a glass of wine out of the bottle and I don't swirl it because I want to taste it as it is. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little tight. Sometimes yeah. it's a little reductive. And that's okay. And then I want to see how it evolves in the glass. Mm. And of course, I will absolutely swirl if, you know, the tannins are a little tough or I'm just not getting much out of the glass or if I'm in the middle of a blind tasting exam and I'm panicking. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I tend to not want to disrupt the, the volatile compounds too much. So... I, but I do agree with you. Tastefully aromatic, I think, is a wonderful way to uh, describe this particular wine. And so then the third uh, experience we have after sight and smell is taste and feel, um, when we actually taste the wine. And for me, the, the taste is just delicious. It's bursting with red fruit. Um, you know, there's not... You, know, you, don't, you don't get any oak on these wines. They're just, they're fresh, they're pure. Um, I just feel like the, the grape is able to express itself in the glass. Um, so along with the deliciousness of the wine, then we've got the structure. And this is where I get excited about Italian wines, especially Italian red wines, because they always have a hit of acid and most of them have a hit of tannins and that really, um, frames all of this beautiful fruit and so it makes for me I, I believe Italian wines are some of the best food pairing wines you can find um, I mean I, I agree as well obviously I run the list at a pasta joint essentially so um, you know loving Italian wine just kind of goes hand in glove with that um, I often think about you know that that bitter astringency you get for, for the sake of those tannins and there's almost, with a lot of great Italian wines, there's this bitter leaf um, on, on the, this bitter herbal leaf on the back end. And for me, it functions like salt in food. And, you know, it just kind of uh, elevates and anchors. Uh, I like your, 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 your wooding framing, uh, the wine, and, um, you know, it just kind of cinches everything uh, on, the, on the back end. And for me, this wine wouldn't work if it didn't have, you know, that, that structure, you know, that, that subtle astringency on the back end, you know, that just kind of like completes the three acts that, you know, you spoke to for the sake of, you know, um, you know, that initial pressure on the nose, you know, that perception of fruit, and then, you know, the, the textural piece, um, just being in its own way, you know, kind of the lingering impression and, and, you know, the most rewarding. And, uh, I know that, um, you know, winemakers in particular, they, as they taste, they, they end up tasting, especially if they're tasting, uh, wines that are in development, they, they taste as much for structure as they do anything else because, um, you know, the top notes kind of fill in uh, a little later, but the, the structure is, you know, the, the, you know, that's the, the bones of the wine and, and, and that's the piece that you really want to nail. And, and, you know, once you've nailed that, you know, hopefully everything else kind of falls into place. Couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that kind of bitter, almost chicory black tea leaf uh, note on the end. Um, so I think that the tannins give a textural astringency, but I think that there is also, as you mentioned, that, that slightly bitter flavor, which, um, which I think just as you said, completes the wine and, and really makes for a perfect food pairing. Yeah, I, I, really, I really like this vintage. Um, I've had a lot of different bouquet, and, and um, uh, this one, you know, feels really sophisticated to me. You know, so sometimes, you know, it can function as a bit of a gimmick uh, because it's so perversely aromatic. But this feels like a more serious wine. You know, yeah. not serious like, uh, you know... Um, uh, you know, something that you couldn't afford or, you know, something that wants to be taken too seriously, just, just, you know, more sophisticated. Well, it's uh, a little bit of a change. I mean, yeah, you, you know, yeah, you yeah. talked about, you know, Chianti and Sangiovese, you talked about Nebbiolo from Barolo and Barbaresco. Um, and, you know, so many, you know, how many thousands of indigenous varieties um, are, are we not getting in this country? Or if we get it, they're in very small supply and hard to find because they're on the samples table they're on the samples table yeah. exactly um, so this this one has a really cool history and and um you know these are both grapes for the sake of the the Ruque that we started with and the grignolino that that i'm pouring that are these piemontesi also ran so they're they're northern italian um grapes kind of in the shadow of the more illustrious piedmont to the extent that you know or in the shadow of more illustrious uh, Nebbiolo, rather, and to the extent that, you know, Nebbiolo has a sidekick, it's, it's more Barbera um, than, than anything else. But these are the wines locally that people would drink while they were waiting for, you know, the other wines to become drinkable. Um, and 
they almost disappeared. So Ruke, um, in particular, had dwindled to a few hundred hectares, and uh, it has a really cool story. So in the 60s, uh, a local parish priest, Don Giacomacalda, this is a great Italian name, um, just fell in love with a grape and uh, devoted his life's work when he wasn't um, administering to his flock um, and, you know, at the pulpit to rescuing it from extinction. And uh, a lot of the local wines at that point made from this grape would have been sweet. Um, he started vinifying it fully dry, and he became this, you know, champion that um, kind of single-handedly uh, brought it to the attention of local growers uh, who then um, developed enough of a reputation for the, for the wine that it achieved DOC status, so it got its own designation of origin in the Italian pantheon, and now it has its own DOCG status, which is like the most rarefied echelon of Italian uh, wine certification status. This particular producer, uh, seventh generation winemaker, Eugenio Gatti, uh, just more great Italian names here. Um, uh, it's from Castellone Monferrato. Monferrato, this designation consists of like seven villages. Every village has a castle and a church. I mean, those are- You those gotta are, love it. That's a good starting point. Castle, you got a castle, you got a church. Um, uh, the, um, the winery itself, uh, uh, dates to the 11th century. It was retrofitted as a cellar in the four, in the 1400s, um, and they've been making wine there ever since. And um, uh, it's not, you know, it's it's a it's what I would consider natural wine. So this is made uh, with native yeast, um, uh, no oak to speak of, uh, vinified entirely stainless. Sees a little bit of cement thereafter, uh, just to kind of soften the rough edges, and then bottled without fining infiltration. Um, they use a little bit of there's a little bit of um, uh, uh, SO2 added at bottling, but that is it. Um, which is, you know, for my money, about as natural as you could want a wine to be. And it, it very much feels like an agricultural product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I really, as I said, yeah, I really like the, the single variety wines because you, you, you kind of get what the wine is all about and where the producer is coming from and how the producer wants to um, express this grape that they've been growing for the, for the whole year. Have you had the good fortune of visiting Monferrato? I've been uh, to Barolo and Barbaresco okay. and touched on Monfrato. Okay. Was that memorable? Very. Yeah? Yeah. Um, were you drowning in, you know, pasta with truffles and old vintages of the finest northern Italian wines in the world? Um, so this was early on in my wine career. I, I had no street cred. And uh, <laughs> so I was a mere tourist, but I did very well as okay. a tourist. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, this is just a, you know beautiful landscape of hilltop towns and um it you know agriculturally is you know a bit of a mecca and and viticulturally you know they make these headliners but they also have these you know other also rants that are that are hugely interesting that are re-emerging um you know kind of on the international wine scene and uh the second one uh sharing with you is from a grape called grignolino uh how familiar are you with grignolino carolyn Moderately. Moderately, moderately, yeah. So um, I discovered Grignolino kind of um, in, a, in a strange, backwards sort of manner. So the first Grignolino I had was from Napa Valley. Uh, was from Heights Cellars. Uh, so Heights Cellars is this iconic uh, Cabernet producer, but uh, they honor the Italian heritage of Napa Valley by working with this quirky, um, you know, aromatic, Italian grape called Grignolino, and it's my favorite wine they make. They make these, like, you know, 90-plus scoring cab, Cali cabs, stuff like that, which is just not not my cup of tea. Um, you know, I appreciate that they're well-made wines, and, you know, there's definitely a market for them, and they definitely fetch a lot more money than their Grignolino, but uh, whenever I've been to tasting and their wines are served, inevitably, the Grignolino is the first thing to go. You know, it's what everybody is kind of cleansing their palates with, and I discovered that and wanted to, you know, kind of trace it back to its roots. And so Grignolino is a grape that um, historically was prized above uh, Nebbiolo. So it was a wine of like um, the Savoie aristocracy in the, the 14th century. And, um, you know, throughout uh, the 19th century, even, you know, some of the greatest wines that came out of, of Piedmont were from Grignolino. Uh, it just happened to make wines that were inevitably lighter than Nebbiolo. And uh, at some point, uh, people, you know, decided that there was a, a greater market for these, you know, more burly, robust, tannic 
Reds, and uh, that's what came to dominate the two most famous villages in the zone, which are Barolo and Barbaresco. But increasingly, people are looking um, uh, to this grape for something to drink while those wines come into their own. This is undeniably lighter uh, than the first wine we started with. It's a relatively short maceration, so um, maceration being the time that the wine spends on the skins, about a week um, on the skins, entirely in stainless, equally natural. They, they do like a coarse filter um, and a little bit of sulfur at bottling, but that's it. Everything else is, you know, wine left to its own devices. Uh, how would you differentiate this from mm. the, the first offering? Well, I mean, in the glass, it looks very Pinot Noir-ish. I mean, it's very pale or even uh, nebbiolo like, Yeah, like dark rosé-ish even. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very pale. Um, and, and so if I had this in a blind tasting, I would be thinking along those lines. Um, but on the nose, it doesn't have that Pinot Noir strawberry fragrance. Um, so no, and there's not, you know, there's a little bit of the, there's a little bit of like a, like a, a sour tar- cherry that sometimes you, cherry, yeah, yep. that you get with, that you get with some Pinot, um, mm-hmm. but it's also leaning more like, um, to me, it's almost like there is something more like leathery, um, and, mm-hmm. and almost like nebbiolo light about it, um, which, which I find really appealing. Um, and, and it reminds me a little bit of, you know, some wines from, uh, the Alto Piedmont, you know, so, so up the, up the mountain from Barolo Barbaresco, they make these lighter uh, nebbiolos uh, that, um, you know, are a little more savory, um, but, you know, don't have as much color and, you know, do the tar and roses thing, but do it in a much more understated sort of way. Yeah, which, which I actually quite like. Um, you said something interesting about, um, about the fermentation, about weak on the skins. I, what I'm imagining is that this is a pretty tannic wine, and so that's all about tannin management. And they don't want to overextract, and that's probably one of the reasons, also, why it's a little bit lighter in color, a little bit thinner grape as well. Yeah, so it's thin-skinned. Uh, the name of the grape. Um, so it's just a killer segue. Uh, the name of the grape, uh, Grignier. Um, uh, the root comes from uh, the Italian for pips or seeds, and Grignolino famously has a shit ton of them, um, which is problematic. Um, if you're working in kind of like an old school winery, because inevitably, um, when you are stomping the grapes or, you know, more likely pressing the wine, but doing it in a kind of coarser, um, you know, uh, more bruising sort of way, uh, those pips break and you get these really coarse tannins uh, in, in the wine. And the challenge with Grignolino is always about, you know, managing those tannins and ending up with something that is, you know, light and enjoyable as opposed to light and so astringent that no one wants to drink it. That's really, really interesting. Um, and so there's, there's a rusticity to the tannins, which I love. Yeah, I dig it. Um, I, I think it's really fun. It's a, it's a fun texture on the palate, and it's really a savory wine. It's almost like a porcini powder. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, very, very cleansing. I, I think that's a great word that you used for this wine. Whereas with the Ruque, there's a little bit more breadth of fruit. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit softer, even though it has plenty of acidity and tannins. Um, the, um, it, maybe it's just a little bit more, the Ruque is maybe a little bit more accessible um, than the Greeny Lino. It's more, it's more fleshed out. Um, yeah, and the, yeah, there's, there's more density exactly. for the sake, for the sake of the fruit. But still quite light and lifted on the palate. Yeah, which is, Pretty remarkable because it's sitting at 14% alcohol. Yeah. Um, or if, if the bottle's to be believed, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, but uh, I, but I, I love both of these wines. Yeah. Um, and I think they express um, very differently what I love about uh, Italian wines is, is the, the acidic lift, the tannic structuring, and the di- diversity of flavors. Yeah, and they're fun. I think I want to drink these at different points in the meal. You know, I want to start off with the Grignolino, um, maybe throw a little chill on it, and then like move into the Ruque with well, uh, something more substantive. Uh, completely agree. And you know, when you think about times of the year to enjoy these, these are no-brainer. You know, spring, summer, fall wines because they are lighter. But I also would love them in the winter time too. Um, I, they're probably not technically considered Alpine wines, but you did mention Savoie, and um, the Savoie region in France and the French Alps um, makes fabulous, fabulous wines that are, um, you know, enjoyed on the ski slopes when there's snow. Yeah, they're, they're kind of fun, too, because they almost have this um, Italian uplift. A lot of those grapes, you know, um, they make ethereally light wines and they're universally herbal herbal you know um uh and and i think they're really fun that way and they land at like 12 percent alcohol which always freaks people out but um yeah and more of them are, are coming stateside too which is equally exhilarating um 
Now, kind of, we, we briefly alluded to um, that Island of Misfit Toys table, these poor samples with just a, a white sticker. Um, and, you know, I, I imagine both of these wines uh, maybe ling- kind of languishing on that, that table at one, one point in time. So the Miraja de Ruque is brought in by the Piedmont guy. Um, and uh, it's actually a friend of a friend uh, who found representation in D.C. not all that long ago. So um, it's not a wine that's been available on our market for a long time. And then the other wine comes from a friend um, and is a collaboration actually between a domestic uh, importer, MFW, and a, and a local um, uh, Piedmontese winery. So, you know, these are, are very small shops uh, actively working to, you know, promote these these local specialties and, and, and bring them stateside. Um, what, you know, is your, what was your advice for producers on, you know, that side of the pond? What is your advice for distributors on this pond, side of the pond in terms of bringing these kinds of wines to market? Yeah, so when I wrote my um, MW dissertation on this topic, um, I, I took a look at, um, wh- you know, what was going on in the, um, let, let's just use these two wines as an example, what was going on in Italy, how would these very small producer wines even think about um, uh, selling them in a U.S. market? Um, and of course, you know, you hear uh, people describe the U.S. market for wine as it's trying to do business in 50 different countries. Yes. I would actually double that because of all of the individual counties that yes. have their own regulations. But um, so there is... Thanks a, a lot, Prohibition. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think that there were some... Um, there are uh, more and more uh, importers that from the U.S. that go to these smaller areas, lesser known areas, and... They, they try the wines and they decide what might sell in their market and they try to persuade those producers to, to sell wines overseas. Um, so there, there is, there's not a great system for foreign producers, small volume producers, to get their wines out of their local market. That's, that is a challenge. But once they've, um, you know, maybe through a friend of a friend figured out, oh, well, you know, there's an importer, um, bringing your wines to the U.S., maybe agave to the U.S., you know, maybe they'll pick up my Ruke. What is that process like? So let's say I start my own, you know, wine importing company. I find agave I like. Um, you know, I want to make Cortese happen for, you know, Americans. Um, I go to whom uh, to, to kind of facilitate that whole process? You know, it, one of the things I love about the wine sector is that it's still very much based on personal relationships. Um, and I think we forget that there is still a formality, um, especially in France. You can't just always show up. So there is a little bit of, you know, reaching out and sort of um, introducing yourself and, you know, here's, here's what I'd like to do. And I'd like to come, I'll be in Italy for the next two months and I'd like to stop by um, and, and try some of your wines and see if there might be a fit in uh, my current portfolio. Um, and it's definitely a two-way street. Um, there's all sorts of stories about, um, you know, how, how do you price these wines? I mean, oftentimes um, these wines may be three, four, five euros a bottle. Well, they're going to show up here on the U.S. retail shelf for maybe fifteen, twenty dollars a bottle, um, and and so how you know there's there's the whole pricing element, um, there's the volume element. So it's better to start off with a smaller importer who does not have a requirement to have a certain high volume that would be required of big supermarket chains, for example. Um, because they simply don't have the volume. Um, so at any rate, so there's that whole side of, you know, what happens in the foreign country? Like, how do you get your wines known? And there really isn't a good, there, there isn't a, a clear process. It is very much word of mouth. Yeah. Um, and now that we've got the internet, you know, both sides can kind of Google and see where they might want to be. Once the wine is picked up and on a ship coming over to the U.S., um, then the importer is really in charge of that wine and has to navigate through, um, you know, various uh, customs requirements, making sure the paperwork is all there, um, the, the the tax and customs duty is paid, um, and they've got to make sure that there's a label on the bottle of wine before it's released into the U.S. market. 
Um, and does so, that have to? Does the label have to be approved before the wine gets on the ship? Well, it it has to be approved before it's released from customs custody. So oh, wow. technically, it could come over. Um, without a label, um, and then it could be labeled in a customs bonded warehouse, but you don't want to do that. Yeah. It's money, it's, uh, it's time, um, it's a hassle. You want to make sure that you're, uh, and the importer takes care of all that for, yeah. for the producer. Um, the importer works um, with the, um, the government agency here in the U.S. It's um, with, within the Treasury Department, TTB. And um, they're the ones that will approve the labels. There's a whole checklist of, of things that the um, requirements that the label has to meet. And, um, and then the labels will get printed, usually in the home country, labeled, um, and then shipped over. Um, and, and so the importer is really making sure that the product gets from the foreign country into the U.S. Um, through customs. And then um, if the importer um, also holds a distributor's license, the importer can also distribute the wine. If not, then they need to hook up with a distributor that will agree to take the wine on. Yeah, which is kind of another maddening legacy of prohibition uh, for so, the sake of our three-tiered system. And that's really what I focused my paper on because I thought it was so fascinating. Um, we have three basic distribution structures or legal frameworks in America. So the one here in Washington, D.C. is known as an open uh, system or a label system. And basically all you do is you walk over to 14th and you. It's very easy. Uh, you pay you pay a, a small like a nickel fee per a bottle. Nickel. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it, it, you it is. You pay the tax, you yeah. fill out it's a few a forms, yeah. and you can basically bring in anything you want. And so, as a result, Washington, D.C. is one of the most exciting places to get wines because of exactly what you just said. Well, and you could be, like, once upon a time, you could, as an independent retailer, import wine. They don't give those licenses out anymore, sadly, but uh, there are some, you know, lovable, like, DC retail institutions like MacArthur and um, Schneider's that have those licenses and bring in wines, you know, and undercut, you know, a lot of other people that bring them in because they're bringing them in directly. Yep, exactly. Direct imports, exactly. So that's one legal system. Um, right uh, to the north of us in Mar Maryland as a state is. Um, generally an open state. Unless you're Montgomery County. Unless you're Montgomery County. And is it Howard County? I can't remember the other one. But at any rate, Montgomery County um, is just to the north of us. And that is a monopoly state or a control state. And that's where uh, the county regulates all of the distribution, sales, retail, everything about the wine. And as a result, you get a decent um, selection of wine in Montgomery County restaurants and shops but, um, but oftentimes people will come to DC because there's simply more variety. Yeah. Um, and, but there are benefits to the monopoly system, and that's what I learned from what my- are the, What are the benefits of the monopoly well, system? Well, uh, you know, the, the county kind of takes care of everything, and once your wine is accepted into their, um, their system, um, it's going to be on every retail shelf. So oh, there, there are a few, a few benefits if you can get in. Um, and that's why, you know, our Ruke producer in Monferrato is not going to know the right person who's yeah. going to, you know, get them through who's the tender system. Who's to, you know, get in Montgomery <laughs> County. You, you could say that. But yeah. <laughs> metaphorical. <laughs> metaphorically metaphorical speaking. Bombs, yeah. um, and so then the third legal system is what we find in Virginia, for example. And that's a, a franchise system. Um, and, and that came out of the automobile industry. So um, automobiles, you know, made in, in Detroit, but then there were all of these showrooms all over America, and those were franchises. And so the franchise laws um, have since been applied to wine um, and alcohol beverages. And so each beverage is treated a little bit differently. But for example, in essence, what it means is that the distributor holds all the power. Oh, interesting. And, um, and so the distributor can demand um, cash on delivery, and if you, you know, if you don't have the cash right then and there, they can turn the delivery truck around, and and you won't have your wines. Um, another byproduct of that is um, it could happen that a distributor can take on your cases of Ruke, for example, sit on it, never lift a finger, never try to sell those wines. 
you know, six months later, you're, you're asking for the sales reports, and they're like, oh, sorry, we, you know, it just doesn't fit anymore. And then you may have to, uh, you know, figure out how to get your wines back. And but, the, so, but for the sake of our, you know, Italian mom and pop, the, the distributor would have already paid for those wines, no? Um, in most cases. Okay. In right. most cases. It depends on the... So hopefully they're not getting stuck with the bill. Correct. It's, yeah. it, oftentimes it's going to be the importer that gets stuck yeah. with the bill. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, what I learned from all of my interviews and researching is make sure you have a good lawyer who can write a good contract. <laughs> and don't spread yourself so, you know, maybe focus on one county in Virginia rather than the entire county. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Wines, and the, wines aren't tied I will up. say the market for the sake of... We're getting kind of wonky um, and, and very, you know, uh, trade-oriented, but the, the market for wine has evolved to where there aren't a ton of medium-sized players anymore. There are a few big players, and then, um, you know, it's become really balkanized. There are a lot of little, small players, and it's actually the most exciting moment, to my mind, um, in which to be discovering a new wine and working with uh, smaller books because you have people that are just hyper-specialized. So for the sake of Piedmont Bay, obviously specializing in, in Northern Italian wine. You have, you know, uh, people specializing in Balkan wine, you know, people specializing in, you know, natural wines from particular regions. And, and the hyper-specificity of it all brings things to us in smaller quantities than have ever been available before. And, and, and it does become regional, you know. So there are some things in this market that um, just for the sake of the arbitrariness of personal relationships we have access to that no one else in the country does. Um, and, you know, that, that is true elsewhere around the country. And, and that's really exciting to me. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, my paper focused on socio, you know, economic, demographic factors as well. And as we all know, Washington, D.C. is a very international city. Yes. And so when I was selling wine, I would regularly have people come in from the embassies and consulates delighted to see wines from their country on our shelves. Um, but, I, but you mentioned something just a moment ago um, about the massive consolidation of distributors. It's a big issue here in the States, and it's such a big issue that, um, and, and we see it in all sectors, yes. hardly just wine. Um, but this administration put out a report on competition, and they addressed the consolidation and how that's squeezing out all of the middle tier. It's, it's interesting, though. Like, I think... It's, it's a bit of a donut for the sake of the market. And uh, I actually have, um, uh, my wife and I have a friend, um, uh, we call him Duff, but he works in the beer side of things. Uh, he works for a massive beer company in New Hampshire. And um, he laments uh, how the big brand, no one's brand loyal anymore. No one's like a Bud guy. No one's a Coors guy. Agreed. And, you know, those are, the, those are the markets, those are the customers that he historically depended on. Now people want to try a million different, you know, microbrews and shit like that. So they're losing market share, you know, the, the larger brands are, to these smaller upstarts. And I, I don't know, I feel like that's slower to develop in the wine uh, trade, but I see, some, I see similar things happening, and, and that, that excites me. It excites and, and potentially concerns. So um, I completely agree with you. There is so little brand loyalty anymore. And I'm, I'm certainly guilty of it. I do not have Ruke, this producer's Ruke, on my table every single night. So I'm, I am really but interested in I don't, in I don't trying... think about brand loyalty in the context of, like, uh, La Miraja Ruke. I think about it in the context of, like, this Arbor Mist that I always drink. Like, the, like the green apple Arbor Mist is my shit, and that's, that's what I'm going to drink across vintages. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think right, Arbor Mist. And you're talking more about the bigger brands. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Arbor Mist mm -hmm. is a vintage a vintage dated wine, but at anywhere. I I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Um, so yeah, I I completely agree with with what your friend is is seeing on the beer side. I do think we're seeing it to some extent on the wine side, um, but I I think some of the bigger issues that the wine. Um, sector is facing is certainly um, all of the more, shall we say, innovative products on the market. So whether it was the White Claw hard seltzers um, and now the ready-to-drink cocktails, um, I think those are, you know, for convenience sake, um, very, very popular. Um, you know, and and then really the um, the 
low and no alcohol movement. Yeah, but that which would not be regulated by Treasury, would it? Like the like a non ABV spirit, is that still regulated by TTB or is that regulated by somebody else? So that would be regulated by the FDA. FDA, okay. Yeah. Um, there's there's certain threads yeah. that get regulated by other agencies, but um, but yeah, if it doesn't have alcohol, then it doesn't fit under the Federal Alcohol Administration. Which is, Act. Which is so wild because essentially, like it's a substitute good. It's true. It's yeah. true. Actually, I just um, was uh, just heard an announcement today about um, on January 21st. There's a mindfulness drinking um, uh, event over at Union Market um, that I'm really keen to to check out. And it's all you know creative mixology and um, real really substitutes for alcohol. And of course, you know here I am like. How do you make money in the wine industry? And so I wanted to jump on the whole low and no alcohol wine um, um, idea. And I talked to a lot of winemakers. And interestingly enough, you know, you see no alcohol, low alcohol beers. And yes. now we're seeing no alcohol gins and tequilas and all this stuff. But with wine, it's, it's very, very hard to have a low or no alcohol wine that has the same texture, the same mouthfeel, and the same quality you level. You strip the soul of wine, you know, when you when you take up the and it's it's um you know there are some people uh, athletic comes to mind making really good NA beer, but um, they start with alcoholic beer, but they're stripping you know five six percent worth of alcohol. You know, if you're dealcoholizing wine, you're stripping you know eleven thirteen you know percent of its self um, of its very soul. Like, how do you replace that? Uh, the most compelling kind of um, alternatives that I've tried have, uh, and, and one of my guests for the show, um, we did an episode on this, uh, was uh, Proxies, these guys out of uh, Canada, and uh, they started with vinegars out of a company called Acid League, and they start with base wine must, and they build up from there. So they're not de-alcoholizing, they're starting with, you know, you know essentially sulfur juice, and then um, they add other botanicals, um, you know, fruits, uh, they work with tea, a lot to mimic the texture and tannins uh, of wine. And you end up with something that's, you know, as complex as wine. It's not one-to-one, -one, you know, um, in the same way that non-alcoholic beer can be, but it's it's compelling. Um, and, and I, yeah, I, I, maybe we'll get there. I'm, I'm sure we'll get there eventually for the sake of um, technological innovation, but um, I, I have yet to try de-alcoholized wine that I, I genuinely, Well, you know, the, the, pro the Canadian like. products you're mentioning are fascinating, um, and I definitely want to check them out. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, why do we drink wine? To me, that is a fascinating question. Why do we drink wine? And I think that there's just something, um, you know, you, you talk about the soul of the wine. Um, you know, it's a product of, um, of history and culture and place and decisions by the winemaker and the growing conditions and there's in economics. And there's so many things that... Um, uh, inform this glass that we've got in front of us. And, and then once we uh, start to try the wine, there's a lot going on. There, it's, these are, this is difficult what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're assessing the, the color and the aromas and the flavor and the structure and the quality and the finish and, um, and then the winemaking and, and what was the impact of the vintage and how is it aging now and will it continue to age? And if so, what's it going to taste like? Do we want to drink it then or should we drink it now? And I mean, there's a lot to it, which I think is why wine attracts people that, um, that are either scientists or in my case, lawyers or, you know, people that um, just have an intensely curious mind and want to figure out the root cause. And I'm not sure that we're ever going to, you know, be able to separate the components of wine to identify everything perfectly. And that's what I love about wine. There's, there's um, some things for me that are still unexplained. Uh, yeah, I, I hope we don't. Uh, uh, I'm going to kind of close things out with a bit of verse and then I have uh, a question or two more for you, Carolyn, before uh, we call it quits. This is uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. This is a dedication to John G. Kamakata, um, who uh, took an unsung grape in Rouquet and brought it back from the verge of extinction. Uh, this is called The Flower. Once in a golden hour, I cast to earth a seed. Up there came a flower, the people said, a weed. To and fro they went through my garden bower, and muttering discontent cursed me and my flower. Then it grew so tall it wore a crown of light, but thieves from over the wall stole the seed by night. 
sowed it far and wide by every town and tower, till all the people cried, Splendid is the flower. Read my little fable, he that runs may read. Most can raise the flowers now, for all have got the seed. And some are pretty enough, and some are poor indeed. And now again the people call it but a weed. That's fabulous. <laughs> that's, Bill, ten, that's, that's anthologized. That's, that's, that's Tennyson. That's, that's old school. Uh, I, I, I understand it's Tennyson, but you too are a poet. <laughs> I have my moments, or at least a curator thereof. Um, uh, I loved your discourse about wine and, and what makes it interesting. Uh, one of my favorite things about uh, the wine industry is it attracts so many people that approach wine from these different you know, kind of directions. So um, I have this theory for the sake of cooks. Like, I think chefs are kind of born for the most part. You know, most, most chefs I know, like, they, you know, they were always in the kitchen a little bit or, you know, maybe they tried out college for a second, but it didn't take and they were cooking for their flatmates and, you know, you know they, they went back. But it, it feels more determinative. Um, wine is an industry full of people that are taking on, like, second, third, you know, fourth, careers, and, and I really love that about it. Um, what advice do you have to offer as someone that kind of did that uh, to people that are interested in pursuing wine that way? Don't quit your day job. <laughs> and you, you haven't, it should be said. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you've managed to do both. Um, so, and I, I say that facetiously. I've had so many people say, oh, how did you get to where you are? And, you know, what advice do you have? And I always say, don't quit your day job. Um, but we all have different risk tolerance levels. Um, so um, just be curious. I mean, if, if you're asking those questions, um, you know, you're already curious. And I think that that is the most important thing is, is just to try everything out there. Um, I do find it really helpful to keep notes. We all think we can keep everything in our minds, but it's extraordinary when we go back to just even a few jotted notes. Keep them on your iPhone. You know, it, it doesn't have to be an extensive uh, notebook. Um, How did you uh, approach that for the sake of blind tasting? So we didn't really talk over the Master of Wine uh, blind tasting regime. It's a little different than what the court does. I actually prefer it uh, because it is uh, predicated a lot more on process than it is kind of the circus trick of here's the wine, it's right, uh, which is kind of the court's approach. Um, uh, you know, the Institute is much more um, concerned with your deductive process in evaluating a wine than it is. But the tasting regime is as, if not more, rigorous. So when you sat for your master's wine, it's three flights of 12 wines, is it not? 36 wines blind. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That, that's yep. a lot of wines. Under time conditions. It's a lot, and it's a lot of pressure um, because it, everything's on the table. Yeah. There is no closed universe of, well, you can expect an Albarino and a Pinot Grigio and a Muscadet or something. No. I mean, you can expect everything that's out there. Armenia, you know, um, we haven't, I don't know that we've had Chinese wines yet, but I mean, you know, it's, the world is, is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere, but I feel like it's everywhere that has some level of typicity. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, well, honestly, I, I did a lot of um, studying on my own. I always say um, when I teach, the better your theory knowledge, the better your tasting. Yeah. And the better your tasting, the better your theory. Um, and so um, I really tried to understand all of the theory behind the wine in the region and the vintage conditions. Um, and so then when I would go into my tasting practices, um, I would have a, a foundation of knowledge um, and you mentioned Hugh Johnson. I mean, I read extensively Hugh Johnson, Jancis Robinson. I read the, the really classic wine uh, tasting authorities um, because I wanted to have... Michael Broadbent a, would be kind of another absolutely. one. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. Well, and, and actually, um, one person that I uh, discovered with my wine studies over in London was uh, Michael Schuster, who has a few books out. No, and cool. he has really done more to teach me about quality and how to deconstruct quality because quality is a very subjective term. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, um, so I um, also spent a lot of time with the local DC tasting group, which is mostly restaurant psalms who are preparing for their various court of master psalm yeah. exams. And what I found was a group of intensely talented tasters 
they tended to be more instinctive tasters. They can just look at a glass of wine practically and know how to identify it. Um, I am not that. Um, so I, I, you know, I had to work a lot harder, but I also think all of that work made me um, able to understand when my students have trouble assessing acidity or assessing alcohol because I had to work so hard to, um, to parse that out on my palate, I can give them a lot of different suggestions that hopefully will help them with their own wine tasting. So I tasted with a local group, which made me a better taster. I tasted with um, every single MW I could find, either here in the States or um, mostly overseas. And um, I, I was really lucky to have um, a tasting partner here in DC that was as equally engaged um, and um, uh, so that that's that was my approach. That's brilliant. Now, if people want to fall deeper down the rabbit hole with you, you still teach at Capital Wine School, do you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I teach mostly the WSET Wine and Spirit Education Trust curriculum at the diploma level, but um, I also teach some one-off classes as well. Um, but we've got a great group of instructors, and so um, uh, I, I think that you know anyone who signs up for those classes is going to be pretty happy. And where can people find you? And the Capital Wine School, if they're interested in learning more about either. Uh, well, you can Google Capital Wine School. Um, I assume it's CapitalWineSchool.com. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, this and, is Capital uh, A-L, not O-L? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, me, I don't know. I'm, I'm around. <laughs> I don't know how to find me sometimes. <laughs> you're, not, you're not on the socials? <laughs> no. Nah. Okay, okay. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Carolyn. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, if you like the sound of what we're drinking, uh, both of these wines will actually be available, I promise, at uh, Rebeler's Hour, uh, which is Washington's premier and only wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel Studios. Thank you, as ever, for joining us. We promise more episodes to come throughout this new year. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of The Universe in a Glass. Mm -hmm.